We are looking forward to having you teach us. We want to understand this passage. We don't want anything contained in these verses to escape us. Please give us the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. And then, Father, also allow this passage to be applied to our lives as we follow you in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord of the Rings is a fantasy novel written by J.R.R. Tolkien. It takes place in a fictional place called Middle-earth. And it's a story of kings and goblins, of swords and shields, of hobbits and gold rings. And there are many battles in the Lord of the Rings tale. One of those battles was the skirmish of Ammon Hen between the evil and fearsome orcs who were pursuing the ring bearer Frodo and his companions. And among his companions was a man named Boromir. And Boromir found himself fighting more enemy orcs than he could handle by himself, and he realized that if he did not call for reinforcements, he would soon be overrun by the enemy. And thankfully, he had in his possession something called the Horn of Gondor. The Horn of Gondor was approximately 19 to 20 inches long. It was made out of an animal horn. It had metal accents and decorative carvings. But what was really special about the Horn of Gondor was that it was said that whenever the horn was blown, all the friends and allies of Gondor would hear it and they would rally to the horn blower and come to the horn blower's side in battle. Or as official Lord of the Rings language states, its voice would not pass unheeded. So Boromir blew the horn of Gondor. It was this very primal sound, kind of a wah, wah, wah. It it echoed throughout the, the hills and the valleys around him, and it was summoning any allies or friends to him. It was a blast that communicated to everyone who heard it on me, on me. Everyone who hears this horn, rally to my side, come to my aid. And that's exactly what happened. Legolas the elf, Gimli the dwarf, and Aragorn the ranger all rallied to Boromir's side and joined him in battle. In John chapter 18, Jesus blows a horn. No, not the horn of Gondor. Jesus blows the horn of truth. He blows a blast so loud that it continues to be heard today. And the message is this, on me, on me, everyone who is of the truth, rally to me. Listen to my voice. And so we are summoned by Jesus to come to him. We are to listen to his voice and contend fiercely for the truth. Now, before we see Jesus blow this horn of truth in our passage, we're going to be shown a picture of the Jewish leaders. We're going to be shown a picture of the Jewish leaders and their extreme duplicity. With their left hand, they would make a show of keeping God's law. And with their right hand, they take action to kill God's son. 
In the next scene, Pilate has a conversation with Jesus. And it is clear from this conversation that Pilate does not believe in truth. Pilate believes in pragmatism and politics. That was his truth. And then finally, we will see Jesus blow the horn. And we're going to ask these two questions. Have you heard that horn? Have you answered the call that Jesus issues to come to his side? And secondly, are you rallying around Christ contending for the truth? So let's look at our passage. This is 18, starting at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What what have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of the world, this world, my servants would not have, or my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. And for this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Our first section we're going to call being careful while killing Jesus. Verse 28 says they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. So John skips right over the the scene where Jesus is questioned by Caiaphas, the currently appointed high priest, and, and some of the other Jews. So you can read about that in the parallel accounts in the Synoptic Gospels. Instead, John takes us right to the action, right to, to governor's headquarters, which means the place where Pilate was residing in Jerusalem. It says it was early morning. The sun rose in Jerusalem about this time of the year at around 6 a.m. But we know it was past dawn. It was past daybreak because the rooster had crowed at Peter's third denial. So most placed the time between uh, 6 a.m. and 8 a.m. And it says they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. This is interesting. They, meaning the Jewish leaders, were worried about becoming ceremonially unclean, which would then prevent them from participating in the ongoing Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was currently taking place. Now, entering the home of a Gentile could result in a one-day defilement, 
Uh, things like the presence of yeast in the, in the Gentile house could result in a one-day defilement. But it could also result in a seven-day defilement. Uh, Gentiles were known to dump the bodies of their aborted baby, babies down the drains of uh, their homes, their sewer drains. So being in those homes it was amount to uh, being coming in contact with a dead body. That would result in a seven-day uncleanness. But the Jewish leaders didn't want either a one-day or a seven-day. They wanted to be able to participate in the feast of Passover and to eat the Passover feast. And someone might raise a hand of objection here and say, wait a second, um, I thought Jesus already ate the Passover on Thursday night with his disciples. In fact, I thought everybody already ate the Passover. But here it says that um, they didn't want to become defiled so they could eat the Passover. So that some people have rushed to the conclusion, oh, well, I know what's wrong. This is where the Bible makes an error. Um, This is one of those places that shows us the timeline doesn't line up in the Gospels, and so we have a problem here. Actually, no, we don't have a problem. And the reason is Passover in Scripture is used not only to refer to the Passover meal itself, but also to the day of Passover and to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a seven-day period that started immediately after Passover and just went right into it. So that whole timeline, that whole Passover and week was called the Passover or the Feast of Passover. So we're fine. Jesus and his disciples did eat the Passover meal on Thursday night. This is now Friday early morning. But the point that John is making in verse 28 is to expose the nonsensical nature of the Jewish leaders thinking they needed to be careful not to enter this Gentile's house so they could avoid defilement as they were carrying out their conspiracy to murder the Son of God. It's as if they're saying, come on guys, let's be very careful about observing ceremonial cleanness as we murder this innocent man. This, this is like uh, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic as it's sliding into the water. It doesn't make any difference. That, that, that doesn't matter. It's, it's worthless to be trying to, to follow these things. Standing outside a Gentile house is not going to make any difference in their spiritual standing before God as they literally committed the most evil act that has ever been committed in the history of the world. They were concerned about where they were standing. I'm killing Jesus, but as long as I stand in the right place, God is pleased with me. It doesn't work. Uh, Going through religious motions saves no one. Going through religious rituals, going through religious rites saves no one. Without a changed heart that worships God in sincerity, those things are worthless. Um, It doesn't matter if you're standing or sitting or kneeling or making some sign with your hands or, or lifting your hands up or or crying out hallelujah, it doesn't matter, any of those things. They are worthless without your heart being right and being made right by the Spirit of God. Well, now we move to Pilate and the Jewish leaders, verse 29. So Pilate went outside and said to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? Uh, Pilate gets right to business. We're not going to greet each other. It's not good morning, how are you? It's, okay, what's the charge? And this was his job. He's acting in official capacity here. It was against Roman law to condemn anyone or to charge anyone without first hearing 
what those charges were. So he asked the question, what's the charge? Verse 30 says, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. That's not really an answer, is it? So Pilate, remember, he had already agreed to send a cohort of soldiers with the temple police to arrest Jesus in the garden. So these Jewish leaders may have been expecting some kind of rubber stamp execution order. I mean, he's already on board with us. We already seem to be on the same page. I guess he's just going to order the execution without us saying anything else. And so they may, have, they may not have thought they needed an official charge. And so that's why we end up with this, um, you're just going to have to trust us kind of answer. But Pilate says, um, not good enough. Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. This is kind of like a, no, nah, that's not going to work. If they're looking for a Roman judicial ruling, they're going to need a, a charge that has broken Roman law. And uh, this kind of trust us, he's a bad guy, that's just not going to cut it. But Pilate is also forcing them to acknowledge his authority. Pilate knows what they want. And he's not going to give it to them until they recognize that, that he's in charge. He wants to, to hear them say that. He wants them to acknowledge that, that he's the one with the power and not them. So they humble themselves and say it. And that's what the next line is. It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. In other words, we could if we would, or we would if we could. Um, only you can order this. We acknowledge that. And then verse 32, John tells us this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the, the word that Jesus had spoken is a reference and, and kind of a callback to John 12, 32. And we know that because the exact same wording is used. John 12, 32 and 33 says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So he's going to die by crucifixion, and that is a Roman method of execution. Well, now we turn to Pilate and Jesus. Having gotten the Jewish leaders to acknowledge his supremacy over them, Pilate moves back inside and he calls Jesus to follow him. So this is now a private conversation between Pilate and Jesus. And the Jews, initially stunned that they would have to do anything except dump Jesus on his doorstep, they, they seem to have come up with a charge. Luke 23, 2 says that they told Pilate, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So those are the charges. And now Pilate is going to question Jesus based on those charges. And, and here's his first question. Are you the king of the Jews. And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Now, why does Jesus ask that question? Is he just wondering if Pilate is astute enough to come up with a relevant question or does Jesus want to know what other people are saying about him? No, this is a legitimate question. If Pilate is asking for himself, are you the king of the Jews? Then Pilate is asking, are you a political military king 
who is attempting to lead a rebellion against Caesar and against Rome? And the answer to that question is, no. No, he's not. But if Pilate is asking on behalf of Caiaphas or Annas, that kind of godfather high priest emeritus that we looked at last week, or the Sanhedrin, it, then, then the question is, are you the sent one from God? Are you the promised Messiah? Are you the true king of Israel prophesied in the Old Testament? And the answer to that question is, yes. Yes, I am. So Jesus wants to know, are you asking or is this, is this somebody else? What, what kind of question are you asking? And Pilate answers in verse 35, am I a Jew? That's his way of saying, no, I'm not a Jew. I'm not asking on behalf of the Jews. I couldn't care less about Jewish law or Jewish prophecy. I'm asking if you're a king for myself. I want to know, are you a threat to Rome? That's what I'm asking. And then he kind of prods Jesus. He says, your own people turned you over. I mean, you must have been something. Come on, what did you do? What did you do? That's what Pilate's asking. And since he's asking for himself, the answer Jesus gives in verse 36 is this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So Jesus is saying, I am a king, but not in the sense that you're thinking of and that you're used to. I'm, I'm not an armed threat against Rome, if that's what you're asking. And Pilate said, so you are a king. Pilate, Pilate hears all this talk about subjects and kingdom, and uh, my, my disciples could have fought, but they didn't. And he, he hears all this language and says, okay, he's still making some sort of assertion that, that he is a king. And he's right. Jesus replies, you say that I am a king. Now, this is not Jesus saying, well, you know, that's your opinion. He's, this is an affirmation. This is Jesus saying, yes, you have spoken correctly. You have rightly said, I am a king. And then what follows is Jesus blowing the horn of truth. Here it is. On me. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, and the horn is issued. Womp, womp, womp. It goes out. Everyone who is of the truth, on me. Rally on me. I'm calling everyone who's on the truth to me. The truth about God. The truth about man. The truth about sin. The truth about salvation. The truth about who we are, where we've come from, where we're headed. The truth about God's grace. The truth about God's judgment. The truth about sin and salvation, the truth about heaven and hell. Jesus is saying, I came to bear witness or to powerfully testify to the truth. And to all his subjects across time, he calls out on me. Listen to my voice. Rally on me. My disciples, the members of my kingdom, are those that answer the call to truth. My disciples desire the truth, they hear the truth, they receive the truth, they love the truth, they follow the truth, they obey the truth, they proclaim the truth, 
They live and die on the truth. They fiercely contend for the truth. Jesus came to blow the horn of truth and to rally his disciples around himself. And Pilate's answer in verse 38 is this. What is truth? Now I've heard some people attempt to spin this and make Pilate ask a sincere question here. That, that, that Pilate is listening to Jesus with an open mind and, that, and then he comes and kind of cocks his head and says, you know, what, what is truth? Like, tell me, what is that? That's not what is going on here at all. There, there's no way that's what's happening. This was a cynical, sneering, dismissal comment. We know this because he didn't wait for an answer. He ended the conversation. The rest of the verse says, after he had said this, he went back outside of the Jews. He turned his back on Jesus and left him there. As soon as Jesus mentioned truth, Pilate's attitude was, I've heard enough. This conversation's over. Pilate did not believe in truth. Pilate believed in Rome. Pilate believed in the authority and the power and the position that had been granted to him by Caesar. Pilate believed in soldiers and armies and swords. Pilate believed in superior numbers on the battlefield. Pilate believed in cutthroat politics and political favors, but he did not believe in the truth. There were so many religions in his day, so many schools of philosophy in the world at that time. The Greeks had their truth. The, the Egyptians had their gods and their truth. Uh, Rome had their teachers of truth. The Jews claimed to have the truth. He saw it everywhere around him. There was just so much truth. It was, it was everywhere, which meant real truth was nowhere. Tr truth's everywhere you look, and they all contradict one another. To Pilate, truth was whatever you wanted to believe and accept as truth. And he rallied around his own truth. Pragmatism, power, power, and politics. That was Pilate's truth. So when this ordinary man stood before him and sounded the horn and said that he came to bear witness to the truth, Pilate says, truth? <laughs> okay, I think we're done here. There is no truth. Pilate rejected Jesus, but he also scoffed at the idea of truth because in his day, each person picked their own truth. Have things really changed that much? I think they, they had, and now they've kind of come around full, full circle, so we're back to where Pilate was. I think there was a day when, when on a cultural level, on a broad cultural level, we heard and responded to that horn of truth, we at least acknowledged it. Uh, it's been pointed out before, and I think it's worth mentioning again. Here's the Webster's 1828 Dictionary definition for truth. Conformity to fact or reality. Exact accordance with that which is or has been or shall be. We rely on the truth of the scriptural prophecies. And then in the dictionary, there are scriptural proofs. Proverbs 8, 7, my mouth shall speak truth. 
John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. In the dictionary, and that's not the only place they appeal to God or scripture in that dictionary as they define words, specifically as they define the word truth. So there was a day where even unbelievers um, would, would give a head nod to the truth of scripture. But that day is gone. That day is long gone. Here's the Merriam-Webster Dictionary 2024 version, truth. A judgment, proposition, or idea that is true or accepted as true. Do we recognize the absurdity of that definition? Let's take the first part. Uh, a judgment, proposition, or idea that is true. So truth is, this is definition, something that's true. That tells us nothing. A car is a car. Uh, a cat is a cat. A house is a house. We've, we've learned nothing. You can't define something by referencing the thing itself. But it's the second part that is really frightening. Truth is whatever we accept as true. Truth is whatever we say is true. Truth is whatever we want to call True. Truth is whatever you decide is true for you. That is the definite. That is literally our culture's definition of truth in 2024. I think we've all heard the phrase "speak your truth." Have you heard that? People used to be taught to tell the truth and speak the truth. Now we're being taught to speak your truth. That's a shift. And to speak your truth in 2024 is viewed as a positive thing. Speaking your truth means you're being true to who you are. Speaking your truth means you're not afraid. It means you are courageous when you speak your truth. Speaking your truth is supposed to liberate you. It's supposed to be an essential part of living a fulfilling life. It's part of reclaiming your voice. When you speak your truth, you learn to love yourself for who you really are. Speaking your truth allows you to stand strong and not be intimidated. Speaking your truth allows you to be who you are. Your truth is born out of who you are, your experiences, your story, how you view the world through your eyes. Your truth is whatever you want it to be. And we are to speak it. I think we need to make something absolutely crystal clear. When Jesus came, he came into the world to bear witness to the truth, not your truth. Let, let's make that crystal clear. Jesus did not come to champion your truth. Jesus did not come to support whatever you decide is true. When Jesus declared he came with us to bear witness to the truth, he was talking about absolute, unchangeable truth that conforms to reality. He was talking about truth that is in exact accordance with God's own self-disclosed revelation. So Jesus came to bear witness about the 1828 definition of truth, not the 2024 definition of truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. 
My people, my subjects, those who rally on me are those who listen to the truth and listen to my voice. So here are the challenge questions. Have you heard that horn being blown? Have you heard Jesus' rallying call to truth? And have you responded to it? And then also, are you contending for the truth? Once to, to Jesus' side, are you now also contending for the truth? So let's take the first challenge question. Have you answered that call? Have you, have you heard that horn being blown? And have you answered the call? So if you're an unbeliever here this morning, I want to remind you just how serious this issue is, just what the, how high the stakes are. We're, we're talking again about who you are, where you came from, where you are going, the judgment of God or the mercy and grace of God, we're talking about your personal eternity in heaven or hell forever. That, that's what's at stake when, we talk, when we're talking about the truth. These are the most important subjects in all of life. It, it doesn't get any higher than this. So you do not want to get these things wrong. Let's think of it this way, unbelief. Here's an illustration. Let's say there's a, a mountain pass and there are several rope bridges going across the mountain pass over a, they, they span a, a several, several hundred feet drop below it. And one of these rope bridges is completely safe. It's made out of brand new rope, brand new hardwood slats, the knots are tied tightly. It's secured on each end so that it cannot move. None of the other bridges are safe. They're made from old rope that's fraying and giving way. They're, it's made from, from, from rotten uh, slats that are falling apart. Some are missing. And then on top of that, the, all the other bridges have been sabotaged. Someone has cut the already deteriorating ropes in strategic places so that if you walk out onto it, it will not hold your weight. You will fall. And you have to cross one. But unbelief is like being blindfolded. So you can't see the condition of any of these bridges. And there are voices crying out to you all around. At school, at work, on the news, in the media, and entertainment, coming through our devices, and voices even, of course, in our own heart. And these voices are saying, just pick one, it doesn't matter. Walk across any bridge. And these voices echo Pilate's, Pilate's what is truth statement. Uh, these voices say all the bridges are the same. It doesn't matter. Just pick one that you want. They all get to the other side. Whichever one you choose will be right. But when the Holy Spirit regenerates a person's heart at the proclamation of the gospel, someone hears the good news and God opens up their heart and brings them to new life. It's like Jesus walking up and taking the blindfold off and all of a sudden you can see all the bridges. And all of a sudden, you realize that all those voices were wrong. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. 
Jesus Christ is the only true bridge. Jesus Christ is the only safe passage between sinful man and God. He is the only one that spans that gap. There is no other way. Jesus Christ alone has made provision for people like you and me to be reconciled with God. And he did that through his own life and death. He did that through his life because he lived the perfect, righteous life. He never once broke God's law. You and I break it all the time. All the time. All the time. He never broke it. So he has that perfect record of righteousness that God demands and that we don't have. He also went to the cross and took the penalty for sin. So the wrath of God that we rightly deserve for disobeying him was poured out on Christ. And God promises every single person, if you repent of your sin, if you turn from it, and you put your trust in Christ alone, he will forgive your sin, he will bring you to new life, he will credit that perfect record of righteousness to your soul. It will be imputed to you, and you will be with God forever. The king has issued this declaration, and he will honor it to everyone who turns to him in faith. Will you rally to Christ as he declares on me and shouts the horn? Or will you be like Pilate and rally to your own truth, whatever that may be? Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. He is the only bridge. He is the only safe passage and deliverance from hell. Now for believers, you may be sitting here thinking, well, praise God, by God's grace, he has called me, he has brought me to new life, and uh, I am walking across that safe bridge, Jesus Christ, so I guess there isn't anything here for me to apply. Um, Wrong. Once we've answered the call, once we have rallied to Christ's side, we are called to contend for the truth, Jude 3. Okay? Now in the opening illustration, Boromir needed help fighting his enemies, and this is where the illustration breaks down. Jesus does not need our help. Jesus does not need our aid. Jesus does not need us to come alongside him and help him beat his enemies. So that's where it breaks down. But he does call us and summon us to contend for the truth. We are to come to his side and with him contend for the truth. So after he has issued this call and said, on me, we're to come to him and not just kind of stand there passively, but we're called to stand next to him and contend. We are to contend for the truth. Now, contending is a two-sided coin. On one side, it is opposing falsehood. On the other side, it is asserting truth. And before we talk about each of those, I want to talk about where we are to contend. We are called primarily to contend for truth in our own homes and in our own families. In our circle, in our sphere of influence where God has placed us. And I know that's going to be somewhat unsatisfying to some people because there are some people that, that are just so full of passion and so full of zeal and they hear that and they think, well, why should we just focus on our homes? Why stop there? Let, let's take this battle to the world. Come on, who's with me? Let's get out there. I want, to, I want to contend for Christ at the national level. I want to get something going and really make a difference. Okay, here's the thing about contending for truth the truth of Christ on a, on a national or a global level. When God wants to use someone at that level, he gifts them for that task, he equips them for that task, and he opens doors 
and places them in that task. Unless he does that, we're not called to it. And it's difficult in this day and age because there are so many people, and this has crept into the church, there are so many people that think unless they're an influencer with 11 million followers that they're somehow failing. Or, or that they too have to be like in the spotlight and be the one and get out there. No, that's really not what we're called to at all. That's not important. If God wants to use someone, he will do it. Or to put another one, to put this another way, if God wants you to contend for the truth of Christ on a national or global scale, he will pick you up and put you there. You don't have to do it under your own strength. He will find a way to put you there. He's God. For now, the best place to contend for truth is in our own homes and in our own family. So again, let's, let's bring it into a landing with talking about these two things. Opposing falsehood, asserting truth. Number one, opposing falsehood. If you look at a, a basketball game, you're going to see players in two different uniforms. You're going to see the, the hoops on each end and the backboard. And you're also going to see some guy in a, in a black and white striped shirt and a whistle running around with them. That's the referee. And his job is to blow the whistle when he sees the rules being broken. Now imagine if a referee was on the court and he was running back and forth, keeping pace, and he had the whistle in his mouth, but he never blew it. It would not take long before the other players to start kind of looking at each other and saying, he's not calling anything. Which means what? We can do whatever we want. There are no rules. In our homes, mom and dad, you are called to be referee. You have to blow the whistle. If you remain passive and you never call out falsehood and don't oppose it, it's not going to take long before your kids start looking at each other and realize this isn't important to mom and dad. I guess there are no rules. I guess we can make up our own truth. So like a referee, mom and dad, you have to be the one to blow the, the whistle. When you see it in your t on TV, when you hear it, when it comes through movies or the devices or the screens, wherever it makes its way into your home or into your life and your family, blow the whistle. Call it out. That's not true. That's a lie. We don't believe that. That's the opposite, actually, of what Jesus taught. Call it out. Blow the whistle. Resist, combat, counter, dispute, falsehood, and lies. Well, that's the one side of the coin. On the other side of the coin, we are to assert truth. So, Unfortunately, it's not good enough just to be running up and down the court being referee. You also have to be coach. You also have to be the coach. You have to teach and you have to train your family. A good coach models and demonstrates and then he gives the players guided practice. So a good coach says, here's how you hold the ball. Here's how you dribble the ball. Here's how you pass the ball. Now you do it. Here's how you make a layup. Here's how you make a jump shot. Now you do it. Practice. In the same way, parents are called to teach and train their children. Here's how you handle the Word of God. Now you do it. Here's how to pass the gospel off to someone else. Now you do it. We're called to be referees and coaches. Contend for the truth. Teach your family. Say, all right, let's, let's run some plays. Let's do the uh, confessions. Let's do the catechism. Or, or let, let me show you how to run a zone defense with the doctrines of grace. We have to be referees and coaches in our own homes, asserting, declaring, proclaiming, and affirming the truth. So oppose falsehood, assert the truth, 
And it's all part of contending. If we want our children to grow up and be men and women who serve and love Jesus Christ, it starts now. And it starts with us in our own homes. That's why we're, to con- we're called to contend. Your kids are watching you. They're watching you to see if you rally to Christ's side. And they're watching to see if it makes a difference to you. They're saying, they're watching you to see if you call it out. They're watching to see if you live it out. And they're watching to see if you will train them. So Jesus has blown the horn of truth. He calls out on me. Everyone who is of truth, rally to my voice. He is the only true bridge to salvation. Repent and believe in him. And once we're standing at his side, we're called to contend for the truth. And that starts at home. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for your glory and your holiness. We give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for calling us to Christ and for calling us to contend for the truth. Father, we pray that you would teach us your ways, that we would walk in your truth, and that we as your church would give you glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.